gotta be back in a sec. This is now a solo podcast from Kira. Dean's gonna hear this later when he comes back. Not when he comes back, when he listens to this, when he's editing. Hey, future Dean. <sighs> did did everything get sorted in Afghanistan? I hope so. <laughs> oh, that's great stuff. You're, you're gonna really enjoy it. Welcome to The Sunday Presents with me, Dean Buckley. And me, Kira Maloney. The Sunday is a website that we created where we write about films and TV in in uh, written form. <laughs> yeah, and yeah this, primarily, and, yeah. And this podcast is, in contrast, audio-based. Exactly. Each episode, Kira and I show each other a favorite film of ours that the other hasn't seen. Yeah, the, the dialectic is I make Dean watch films widely considered among the greatest ever made and then dean makes me watch a film widely considered the fourth best film dw griffith directed <laughs> <laughs> so yeah in episode four kira showed me vertigo now it's my turn to show her a film about a woman whose life is destroyed by rich older men yes it's the perfect movie for ankle fetishists of all ages dw griffith's 1920 silent melodrama way down east uh, I specify silent, even though all films in 1920 were silent, <laughs> because I just kind of want to flag it at the top of the show so you're not confused by the fact that there will be no clips from the film in this episode. Uh, they, don't, they don't exist. Even even the music was performed live in those days. So I'll be using clips from other sources instead. Uh, you you will know better as a listener what I've chosen than I do at this minute. So <laughs> I can't really tell you what I'm going to do. Silent films are good. Silent films are good. They're a uh, lost art. There's only like three to four like mad fellas that nobody has ever heard of who are like dedicated <laughs> to still making silent films. Yeah, I I would say that compared to like just like a random average person off the street, I've watched a good few silent films, but I've nevertheless watched pathetically few silent films. Oh, very, very much the same here. I haven't even watched a second D.W. Griffith feature. <laughs> yeah, and what I have seen definitely skews more towards comedies. Like, I've seen all of Chaplin's features, and I've seen The General, Buster Keaton, the greatest action movie of all time. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And I've seen Safety Last with Harold Lloyd, the second greatest action movie of all time. <laughs> and, yeah, and then in terms of dramas, I've seen, like, the Cabinet of Dr. Caligari and Battleship Potemkin and the Passion of Joan of Arc, but pretty, yeah, pretty sparse. Yeah, and yeah, and this is the first, the first Dean film I've seen. Yeah, you you very accurately describe me as someone who just gets a notion to watch a film, and I would hundred percent have only watched Way Down East because I got a notion <laughs> to watch it. I I saw somewhere in an article or something. The most famous bit of trivia about this film, which is the only thing most people, if they know anything about this film, know, which is that Lillian Gish, the lead actress, became permanently impaired during filming because we'll get into the scene later. But yeah. she she, uh, her ha- she she had her hand in like a icy river for many hours on her own insistence. I just want to say that <laughs> on the top. This this isn't 
this is a might be a workplace safety issue, but it's it's it wasn't like DW Griffith was like bull whipping her and telling her to get that hand back in the river. You know? <laughs> also, I, I don't know why I feel like I need to defend DW Griffith. Dean, tell us about DW Griffith, please. DW Griffith is God. He's such a weird guy. I I would say he's the original blockbuster film director. And what was that notable blockbuster he made, Dean? Yeah, the notable first blockbuster in history he made was, of course, The Birth of a Nation. The Birth a of Nation. a Nation. Yeah. Yeah. The very, very, very uh, famous 1915 <laughs> film about how the Ku Klux Klan saved the South from the evils of Reconstruction. Yeah. <laughs> by murdering Black people. It was very cinematically impressive. But but after that he made multiple films about racism being bad. So he 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 bag in that respect. Yeah, the thing about Griffith is he seems to have been tortured his whole life after making The Birth of a Nation by the idea of people's perception of him from The Birth of a Nation. <laughs> which just raises questions of what did he think the birth of a nation was gonna come off like? <laughs> I think the birth of a nation. Going to be cool. There's a lot to unpack there, and we won't be unpacking it today. <laughs> no, because today we're talking about one of his later films. Thank God, starring the same lead actress as Birth of a Nation, admittedly, as well as the same lead actress of his racism is bad film, Broken Blossoms, which um, sounds like it has a lovely message. Does seem to ha- have the the her Asian love interest be in like quite offensive yellow face <laughs> way down east i would say admirably non non-racist i would say there's virus, no, nothing about race in it whatsoever because they're all white people yeah yeah <laughs> that's true dj griffiths co-founded united artists he did with charlie chaplin our fave and um mary, mary pickford, pickford. And Douglas Fairbanks, who I remembered this time. I always forget <laughs> Douglas Fairbanks. He's I think the because fourth guy. He is the fourth guy. It is unfortunate that Errol Flynn came along so soon <laughs> after Douglas Fairbanks' heyday to like largely eclipse him in public perception and, and swashbucklers. What, what, what was the premise of, of United Artists? For artists in the film industry to have creative control over their own work and to own their own work through the company. Um, and wow. Somebody should have do something to. like that now. <laughs> United Artists is no longer with us, of course. RIP. It was not as popular memory would have it destroyed by Heaven's Gate. If your company is in such bad shape that one film flopping, even a flop as big as Heaven's Gate financially can destroy it, then it, your company wasn't in good shape before you made Heaven's Gate. Also, footnote, Heaven's Gate is a masterpiece. I have heard that from you. And now it's going to be owned by Amazon. Yep. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Cut this shit. Man, what you going to do now? What we're going to do right here is go back. How far are you going back? Way back. <laughs> As we go a little something like this. Hit it. Way Down East, directed by D.D.W. Griffith, silent film from 1920, which attempts to do a feminism and <laughs> fucks it up so bad that it goes all the way around again. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So I want to read the opening... The opening title, Crawl. It's not Crawl, but I want to read that more or less in full because I think it gives a good idea. Since the beginning of time, 
Man has been polygamous, even the saints of biblical history. But the son of man gave a new thought. I'm not sure why he's attributing the concept of monogamy to Jesus. Pretty random. Anyway. And the world is growing nearer the true ideal. He gave of one man for one woman. For listeners at home, the first letters of one man for one woman are capitalized. So it's like, you know. Not by laws. Our statutes are overburdened by ignored laws. But within the hearts of man, the truth must bloom that his greatest happiness lies in his purity and constancy. Today, woman brought up from childhood to expect one constant mate, that's in all caps, possibly suffer more than at any point in the history of mankind, because not yet has the man-animal reached this high standard, except perhaps, in theory. If there is anything in this story that brings home to men the suffering caused by our selfishness, perhaps it will not be in vain. So that's the purpose of the film. Yeah. <laughs> so after this uh, lecture, we're introduced to our main character, Anna, mm-hmm. played by Lillian Gish. And I just want to say that Lillian Gish is amazing in this movie. Uh, yeah. She's so expressive but never like hammy mm-hmm. and her ability to guide you through the different emotions and tones in the film is what really makes the whole thing pull together anyway at the start of way down east Anna is going to visit her rich relations in boston to ask for money basically because her and her mother are poor and she arrives when they're holding a bridge whist party which i don't know is a party where you play both bridge and whist because, I mean, they are different games. But anyway, her cousins are bitches. Mm-hmm. Which I could go into more, but it doesn't really come back again. The film has like a million characters. <laughs> and a lot of them are somewhat tangential. Yeah, like almost every character from Boston never reappears. They do some like town mouse and the country mouse stuff. Mm. And she has her mittens tied to her dress and they laugh at her or whatever. And there's an eccentric aunt who's who clearly, wears a top hat. Who's clearly a lesbian, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that that's what eccentric means in this context. <laughs> it's like Diane Keaton as Glenn Close in Albert Nobbs just walks into frame. <laughs> <laughs> and you're like, oh, I get what you mean by eccentric, too, don't you? Don't anyway, this guy called Lennox Sanderson mm-hmm. sees Anna. And he does the old uh, eyes popping out of the head cartoon wolf <laughs> sees a sexy lady thing. Yeah. And uh, it says... Sanderson has three specialities. Ladies, ladies, and ladies. In lowercase, capitalized with with, with underline, <laughs> and then all caps. <laughs> he lives off his rich dad, and he just oozes slime from his pores. Yeah, yeah. He starts going out with Anna. Eventually, he brings her to his apartment to meet his... And who must have gone out, but will be back soon. Yeah. He doesn't have an aunt. It's all a lie. It's all a lie! And he puts some moves on her. On Anna, not his fictional aunt. <laughs> and, and she's like, no, no, no. And then he's like, no, wait, you don't understand. I want you to marry me. 
And yeah. she's like, yeah, it's great. Let's do it. And he's like, but we have to keep it a secret. Okay. Which is a really classic red flag. Yeah. So they get married. They do the sex. Ada goes home to see her mother and is like, everything's going to be great. Don't worry. And Sanderson's still like, you can't tell anyone that we're married. Mm-hmm. And then she realizes she's pregnant. And when she tells Sanderson, he's like, psych, we're not married. Yeah. It was a fake wedding to trick her into fucking him because Sanderson is a piece of shit. A young brother, kind of bone skinny. I take a girl to the gold penny. Get romantic just like I planned it. Then cut turf and leave the girl stranded. Is it hard because I just beat it? Not really. That's what the girl needed. That's game. I thought that you knew this. Matt game. And mine is the smoothest. So now Anna is an unmarried pregnant woman in New England in like the 1910s. So not, not a good situation. So she goes to another town to have her baby. After her To mother, hide her shame. Her mother dies also just like off screen. What? Her. Really? I didn't even know. I was wondering the whole time what happened to her mother. And I was worried about her living in poverty. <laughs> no, the intertitle before it shows her. In the other town where she's, you know, living under an assumed identity says her mother died. Okay. Well, that that plot hole closed. Yeah, there's there's a lot. She never like because the whole instigating thing is about trying to get money to help her mother. And then after this, you never see her mother again. So I thought she just like abandoned her. No, no. Her mother dies off screen. There's a lot of weird time stuff to do with her mother, actually, because at the start, the very start of the film, her mom asks her to go to their rich relatives in Boston, and Anna's like, oh, but I'd hate to ask them. And then there's just a time skip for the sake of a time skip, <laughs> like through the troubled twilight, and then nothing has changed. They're sitting in the same positions, on the same chairs, in the same room, and then Anna just goes, ah, fine, I'll go. And I could only imagine that it's Griffith's attempt to fulfill the impulse that could not yet be fulfilled by the smash cut. Well, I have something to say about that moment because it's possibly my favorite thing in the whole film. Okay. Which is when it becomes twilight, the frame is tinted like a dark bluish purple. Mm. And then Anna lights the lamp and it's tinted yellow. And it's fucking rules. Just for everyone at home, love tinting in the film where the the frames are tinted different colors like green or red or you you can name them you're familiar yeah it's uh and, not uh, a black and white film it was yeah. shot in black and white but it's it's tinted each each shot anyway anna goes to this other town to have her baby uh, to hide her shame i believe the intertitle says and she stays at this hotel and pretends like she's married but her husband is away yeah and the landlady is very skeptical and she has her baby who is very sick when he's born and she baptizes him herself in a really lovely moving scene mm-hmm. and she she names him trust lennox which is just oh and then in an even more heartbreaking scene <laughs> the baby dies not off screen it's really sad yeah just blowing on him trying to keep him warm and everything and then shortly after that, the lad lady kicks Anna out. For being She's an unwed like, mother. Yeah, yeah. Because the landlady's a piece of shit. Mm-hmm. And then Anna is off wandering. And eventually she makes her way to Bartlett Farm. Which 
basically the whole way through the film up until this time there have been these like brief scenes of the Bartlett family and the people in their village in a manner that appear to be here are some random people like you'll be in the middle of, of, of a scene like with Anna and Sanderson and then it'll cut to just like some guy in some place trying to get his horse to move when his horse wouldn't move Constable Rube Whipple trying to lead his horse up a hill <laughs> the horse was called Napoleon Rube Whipple is one of the, the two fat buffoons in the film. Yeah, yeah. It's a silent movie. What do you want? So the <laughs> the most important of the of like the Bartlett town characters are Squire Bartlett, who who owns the farm and he's big into the uh the thou shalt nots in in scripture. And then there's Mother Bartlett, who's nicer. <laughs> But also super and, into the scripture. Yeah, but more into like the knife parts. Yeah. Whereas Squire is just into the bad parts. Yeah. Not bad, but like meaner parts. Yeah. The more judgy parts, we'll say. And then there's David, Squire Bartlett's son, who, when Ada gets fake married, wakes up in a cold sweat. Yeah. <laughs> across town. <laughs> Anna asks the Bartlett's if they have any work going, and Squire Bartlett is like, ooh. What if she's a loose woman? We should turn her away. And then Mother Bartlett is like, whatever you do to the least of my brethren, you do to me. And then he's like, damn, you're right. Yeah. She could stay. No one's ever going to say I didn't take the scripture seriously or whatever he's. Yeah. Also, I just want to say that like all the country people's dialogue in the intertitles is like written in. um, There's way more phonetic stuff than there is in. The city people's dialogue. Yeah, it, city people dialogue is is taken neutrally. <laughs> like Squire Bartlett says, you don't appear to be strong enough for work, but it's written as peer, like apostrophe p or, which is really confusing because that reads as pair. Yeah, yeah. So then, around the same time that Anna comes to Bartlett Farm, a local girl called Kate comes back to the village, and David is supposed to marry Kate since their families arranged it when they were little kids but neither of them are particularly into it david especially since he very quickly falls in love with anna Mm. and kate meanwhile basically has two suitors there's the professor who is the bartlett's summer lodger and hold on to your hats lennox sanderson don't call it a comeback So Sanderson comes over for dinner and he like pulls Anna aside and is like, you have to go away. You can't. I I live nearby. You you can't be here. What if they find out about your past? And she's like, what if they find out about your past? And he's like, I'm a man. (laughs) And then Anna is initially considering leaving because she tells David that she's too weak to work. And he's like, oh, no, you're not. And you'll get stronger. And you should you should definitely say and not because I'm in love with you or anything, just for other reasons. <laughs> and then eventually later David tells her that he loves her and she's like, We must never speak of this again. Um Yeah. Because because it literally says in one of the intertiles that David thinks she's a virgin. Mm. Is like the version of her that he's in love with he imagines as being really like pure and virginal 
and she feels th- that she could never marry now because of what happened with Sanderson, basically. And she actually asked Squire Bartlett if, you know, if she really was a loose woman like he first thought, could she be forgiven? And he's like, nope. <laughs> Which is uh, very Christian. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And then the landlady from ages ago comes to the village for the sewing circle. With the gossipy neighbor. (laughs) They see Anna through the window and she tells the gossipy neighbor about how Anna had a baby and no husband. All caps. And... The local woman is like, well, excuse me, I gotta go tell everyone I know about this. <laughs> Time to ruin um, an innocent girl's life. It is a crack and bit of gossip, in fairness. <laughs> <laughs> so the gossipy lady tells Squire Bartlett, and he goes to the hotel to find out from the landlady if it's true. And uh, and it is. So he comes back, and he tells Nana, get the fuck out of my house. And he doesn't call her a whore, but I feel like it's implied. And David is like, no, it's not true. Tell him it's not true, Anna. But Anna says, you found out so much, you think you have found out everything. I was an innocent girl tricked by this piece of shit. You have as an honored guest in your home. Sanderson, he was there. Everyone's there. Like every character. That's Well, I mean, every character in, in the village, not all those people in Boston. Yeah, the eccentric aunt literally only appears in two scenes in completely different <laughs> outfits and it is never, the leaves for her to summer in Europe and is never seen again. Well, she, she gives Anna a nice dress. That's when she, that's, that's why Sanderson falls in love with her because she's got a nice dress on. <laughs> yeah, she comes down the stairs in this dress and I believe the title card, I can't remember the full, full quote, but I, I remember that... Her, like, pure, innocent beauty, whatever, like, inflamed his jaded (laughs) appetite. His jaded (laughs) appetite is the phrase I really remember. Gross. Yeah, yeah. So Anna runs out of the house, but there's a storm! A blizzard! Oh no! And David follows her, but he's he's a good bit behind, because first he goes upstairs, and then he... And then he's like, oh, she must have left, and then he leaves. It's like... Yeah, he. Um, I don't know why he thought she'd gone upstairs. Surely you would have heard her go upstairs. Anyway, whatever. Yeah. David's kind of a dumb dumb. He's a sweetie, but he's a dumb dumb. Yeah, simple farm um, boy. So David follows her, and he finds her floating down the river on a sheet of ice, because she lay down on the frozen river, and then the ice broke, and she's floating towards the waterfall, and she's one hundred percent going to die. But David saves her. And he brings her back. It's like a big action set piece. And Squire Bartlett apologizes. And Sanderson is like, I realize what I did was wrong. Do you want to still get married? And she's like, no. (laughs) For so many reasons. Yeah. And then the film ends with Anna and David getting married. And also Kate and the professor. And also these two minor characters I haven't really talked about. (laughs) Yeah, the gossipy lady... And and the man who's been stalking her for many years. Yeah, he's he seems to have a club foot. This horrible goatee, just this this appalling goatee. He and seems to be an alcoholic. Follows, also, he follows Martha, the gossipy lady, around all the time, like every day for twenty years. <laughs> but they get married also at this triple marriage, and you know, isn't monogamy nice? Women should get married. <clears throat> the end. Way down east. Oh. 
just wanted to 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 situate Lillian Gish's life in terms of world history for a sec because okay because she's so she's she was quite young when this was made she was I think like twenty seven when Lillian Gish was born the American Civil War was more recent to her than the Reagan administration is to us that's fucked up <laughs> she was twenty she was twenty three when the Russian Revolution happened and she died four years after the Berlin Wall fell wow. She made her first film a year before Martin Scorsese's dad was born. <laughs> and toward the end of her career, she made a movie called Hambone and Hilly about a dog called Hambone who has to get from New York to Los Angeles to be reunited with its owner. And it co-starred Candy Clark from American Graffiti, Robert Walker from the Star Trek The Original Series episode Charlie X. He was Charlie, Charlie Great X. Great episode. Check it out. And O.J. Simpson. <laughs> Imagine being in the birth of a nation and making a funny dog movie with O.J. Simpson at two ends of your life. That's like, crazy. Yeah. Those are like all Lillian Gish facts. I just... <laughs> so we should talk a bit about the explicit moral framing of the film, which is... <laughs> One of the very historically specific elements <laughs> of it, especially it being explicitly Christian. The like, Christian stuff I didn't anticipate and found quite odd. Yeah. And it's not that weird in that, like, like even Charlie Chaplin movies will have just like weird random Christian stuff, but it's usually like trying to offset his communism. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. But like. Hmm, what if I, this, this, this kid film seems to be. Awfully sympathetic to the poor. What can I do to make pe sure people don't think I'm a communist? Why don't I just stick an unrelated still image of Christ at the front of the film? And then uh, that's it. <laughs> oh, legendary. Legendary. So it's not like that unusual, but it really lays it on pretty thick. Yeah. In yeah. a way that is, it's totally unnecessary to the story. Yes. Because all the characters say the themes. Yeah. I I do think that the very explicit framing does do some interesting things to some scenes. First of all, the fact that it has this explicitly Christian framing and then every person who mistreats Anna except Lennox is like a devout Christian. Yeah, yeah. But also even before that, it's something similar to you know how we were saying that like like no knowing the twist, so to speak, in the second act of Vertigo just yeah. changes the way that all the scenes play out. Yeah. When I know where this story is going, not just like by intuition or instinct, but because there has been like an <laughs> essay at the start of the film letting me know where it's going, <laughs> all the scenes between Lennox and Anna, you could you would have been suspicious of Lennox anyway, Mr. Ladies, Ladies, Ladies. <laughs> but the the fact that you know where this is going, yeah. it makes it so like he's so much more slimy. And Anna's affection for him is so much more, like, tragic. Like, yeah. not just the scenes they share together, but when she goes home after he asks to marry her, and she's, like, you know, clutching her hand to her heart. She's so fucking happy. She keeps the ring on a necklace mm. to hide it, and she'll, like, take it out and, like, kiss it. And it's, like, oh. oh. Yeah. When she accepts the proposal, and it cuts back, like, like, She's so excited. She has tears of joy in her eyes. And she's like, I'm going to tell everybody. And he just grabs her and is like, you can't tell anybody. <laughs> and you're like, 
Oh, Lennox, you can't. Lennox. Yeah. You, you, you cad, you rogue. <laughs> yeah, I, th- I think you make a good point that it does, in terms of the Christian framing, it is kind of calling on, or not even calling, but like framing, treating unmarried mothers with kindness as part of Christian duty, which is mm. nice because certainly historically uh the opposite (laughs) yes yeah but it it doesn't just frame it as like we should like as a society and as people be kind to unwed mothers it's like specifically like you must marry them yeah like the solution (laughs) to the problem yes which is at least i i will say this like i mean it would be very easy to make a much worse version of this movie where she marries lennox at the end yes yeah. And that would be just awful. <laughs> no, that would be... We haven't mentioned that uh, a lot of scenes from this film are actually missing. Yes. One of the missing scenes at the end, which I'm really <laughs> sad we didn't get to see, is basically after Anna says no no to Lennox, he turns to Kate and she like just like goes <laughs> and turns away from him. <laughs> and then he turns just facing the gospel lady. He's not looking <laughs> to her as an option. But she also rebuffs him and pulls her stalker away from him like get away from that scoundrel my stalker of 20 years <laughs> there's a good few missing scenes bits where it'll because it's a really old film and it obviously wasn't preserved that well so there's a we both watched like a restored version of it but there's parts they couldn't restore and so it'll just say scene missing and it'll tell you what happens yeah sometimes i still have the dialogue cards yeah. and they'll just play those yeah and there are a and couple of places there... where they just drop in a still. Yeah, I was just going to say that there's a couple of parts where there's like a series of stills. And I was like, this is because pieces of film are missing. But also it was really cool and I loved it as like a technique. Yeah, <laughs> like yeah. The, especially the first time she dances with Sanderson, there's like a still of them facing each other and then it's still like close up on their faces and i was like this is fucking awesome yeah yeah especially that one because i'd honestly forgotten from the from when i watched it previously that the stills were there for that reason and i I immediately remembered after a couple of seconds but at first i was like oh they're showing them like how they must have been pictured in the society pages yeah yeah it's really cool i don't know yeah it works yeah the missing scenes are thankfully mostly seem like not super plot relevant. Like it'll just be so the two buffoons of the town, the two fat buffoons. The main one is High Hopper or no High Holler. That's it. Yeah. Who's like a farmhand at the Bartlett farm. And then the other is Constable Rube Whipple. The names in this film are great. <laughs> incidentally, like There's a bit where, where all that's missing is that um, High Holler and Seth got into a fight and it does not explain why they got into a fight at all. And then it just cuts to like, like Some Squire Bartlett. Yeah, yeah, Squire Bartlett like telling I Otter to get away. And it's like, <laughs> I can't even remember. There's no reason given. So you gotta have an action scene. It's like a Marvel movie. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> First blockbuster director really laid down the template. <laughs> Can I just for a moment talk about one of the uh, largely disconnected scenes of people in Bartlett Village is the shot where we're introduced to, to Constable uh, Whipple, mm. where there's a kid with a cat on his lap fanning him, and there's a bunch of what appear to be very meaningful close-ups of the cat on his lap. And I was like, 
is this kid like does he have a gammy leg or something like what what is this like is this and it, it never comes back no he i think griffith <laughs> just wanted to show a picture of a cat falling asleep yeah it's a, it's he a just cute shows... cat don't get me wrong it's, it's yeah because it's totally white yeah it's real teeny tiny there is another like there's a lot of stuff where, where griffith's just like showing an animal and the very first time that I remember that happening, it's like a mother bird feeding two baby birds. And you can tell that is that is real nature footage because there is stuff coming out of that bird's mouth. It is <laughs> truly disgusting. But also, you know, a beautiful circle of life. I thought you wanted to talk about Seth, who is like, do you want to talk about Seth? For Seth a again? The stalker. Oh, yes, I do. Uh, because okay, what so... is that about? <laughs> He's problematic. problematic. Martha the gossip is just going around doing her business and there's this guy called Seth who has a terrible very long goatee yeah horrible looking it's just like knocking back a bottle of whiskey is following her and she's like oh yeah he's been following me every day for 20 years what can you do (laughs) and there's it's extremely bizarre like, at different times, it seems like maybe she's slightly annoyed by it, and other times she's, like, almost complimented by it. It never seems like she's interested in him until they get married Yeah. Uh, at the end. And it... Even while they are getting married, it doesn't seem like she's interested in him. She, he, he, she rolls her eyes and then says, I will. Because they don't say yeah. I do in this film, they say I will. That's true, I yeah. guess. That's... <laughs> it's extremely bizarre, because I don't know what we're supposed to think of, I think we're supposed to just think it's funny obviously but yeah I don't <sighs> and it's not even just because it's you know extremely <laughs> creepy and weird and ugh, but it's just also just not funny like there's no yeah there's no, there's joke. no real joke the joke is just stalking that's the joke yeah uh, there are there are other scenes involving Seth and Martha that are comedy scenes because they're comedy side characters. But yeah. I don't get why what's funny about their relationship, even though it's clearly supposed to be funny. I don't know. It's one of my favorite films, but it's one of my favorite films where there's a lot of it you can take or leave. But there's just one main thing, and that's just like the best, which is you know the main story and Lillian Gish and and the beautiful direction. And then there's just these kind of comedy bits that just happen <laughs> throughout it and I, they're, they're not bad I'm not, I don't, I'm not like oh I wish there was a no comedy cut of Way Down East but like <laughs> they're definitely not the parts I'm there for I guess yeah yeah it is it is really nicely directed this I really like the use of close-ups or like not even necessarily close-ups but like like it'll cut to like a single of of a character yeah facing the camera and it's always really pretty and i really do love the tinting like sometimes it's like the example i talked about with the twilight and then she turns on the lamp it's reflective of like something happening in the narrative but most of the time it's just like a mood or a vibe like yeah like the honeymoon suite is in red and i'm like i get it they're gonna do the sex and yeah it's just really pretty it's really pretty film the thing with the not the close-ups the singles is they're especially great when they feature lillian gish who like i don't want to say this 
in a definitive way because I don't know enough about the history of world cinema and stuff. But when they, especially if it cuts from a single of somebody else to a single of Lillian Gish, it's like it's cutting from a single of like silent cinema as it had been until Lillian Gish got there. And then silent cinema from when Lillian Gish showed up <laughs> and like invented screen acting. Because early screen acting, as you all know, is like just theatrical acting, but there's a camera there a lot of the time. You couldn't say that of all things. Obviously, there are, you know, Buster Keaton and Charlie Chaplin and Harold Lloyd certainly were working with the camera and not just <laughs> like doing things in front of a camera. But a lot of especially drama films at the time, especially because they were based on plays, they were basically just a filmed play with with much better sets until you know the different directors started trying out different things and and innovating the medium because at that time there was almost no medium so there was lots to innovate and genuinely every time it comes to Lillian Gish it's like a leap forward in cinema watching it because <laughs> you know Angelica Jade Bastian's article about Keanu Reeves in Brightwell Darkroom yes that, that, that article really got to what I like about a lot of actors that I, I, I really love, which is that they are, um, including Keanu, is that a lot of time, it's almost like people write off the ability of silent actors to look really compelling just being shown on a screen as if like, well, they just look that way. They just happen yeah. to have a look, you know? And yeah. you would be very easy to make that extremely shallow analysis with Lillian Gish, who does just look like a really strikingly beautiful woman. But I mean, if, if we talk about the any of the scenes with the baby, she's so um, brilliant in those scenes. Like, she's what makes them. Like, when she baptizes the baby, the landlady says, <laughs> like, a fucking dick. Uh, you know, if your baby dies uh, bef- before you baptize it, uh, it'll never see God. But she doesn't say that, like, so will I call a priest? She just yeah. says it mm-hmm. and then fucks off. And so Anna baptizes the baby herself. And it's just, like, there's so many emotions going on in that scene in yeah. terms of her fear of the baby's death and her absolute love for the baby and her... It's both, like, a, an act of, like, panic desperation and an act of... of self-giving love yeah and all of that is just on Lillian Gish's face that's how you know everything that she's feeling something I always think about is when Chaplin made his drama film it's either a woman in parts or off parts I can never remember I think it's in he made the actors learn their lines which was they were outraged by this because why do I need to learn my lines no one's gonna hear them and he was like you gotta learn your lines. It's gonna be way more naturalistic if you learn the lines and then you say the lines. And they were like, what the fuck? What the fuck is this? And I think that that says a lot about how a lot of silent acting was. Both like why a lot of silent actors struggle to transition to sound movies. Mm-hmm. I think that particularly in the early years of silent cinema, it wasn't even thought of as 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 acting. Uh, mm. Like I, I I remember reading that Fatty Arbuncle. Let's not go there. Um, <laughs> when, when 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 he when he started working in the movies, he was like really embarrassed about it. And he told his wife like I'm just doing this for the money. Then I'm gonna get back on the stage. It's just you know I know it's not real uh, real acting. 
but with someone like Lillian Gish, I feel like there's a degree of taking film acting seriously, both as acting and as its own unique art that's mm-hmm. different from stage acting. And that that combination, I think, because I think there can be a tendency in, in kind of earlier silent films to kind of veer in one direction or the other or either just basically doing stage acting or thinking this isn't worth doing stage acting for. I'm just going to phone it in. Yeah. <laughs> and Lily Gish is like, these are not good options. Mm-hmm. I'm going to be a fucking movie star. and You can't stop yeah. me. And she was. She was one of the first movie stars. She she willingly gave, unlike a lot of people who who didn't like make the transition smoothly. Lillian Gish basically willingly gave it up because she couldn't be bothered. <laughs> and then and she still, but she and she still kept. She, she was still in movies after that when she wanted yeah. to be. Like she yeah. could be in a movie whenever she wanted. Yes, she exactly. Wanted exactly, and she and and she she was she was in plenty of films thereafter, including films considered you know among the greatest of all time, like Night of the Hunter. And uh, ha- also Hambone and Hilly co-starring O.J. Simpson. <laughs> no, who can say they had a career like Lillian Gish? Not even Dorothy Gish. <laughs> Are you glad you watched Away Down East? It was good. I liked it. I wasn't like it didn't blow my socks off, but I liked it. It was it was it was good. It, uh, I really liked Lillian Gish in it, and I really liked the colors and the stills that were not <laughs> D.W. Griffith's intention. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah, it's a really interesting film, and I certainly will watch some of D.W. Griffith's more famous films. Probably. Uh, will you watch Birth of a Nation? I will someday. I'm sure it's racist, but I watch racist stuff every day. Yeah. I I don't watch racist stuff every day. Or, well, isn't everything racist when you think about it? Yeah, I mean... The culture of racism that we all live in. I do do sometimes think that maybe one of the reasons you and I are more skeptical of the notion that you can have racism lasered into your brain by art against your will is that we both grew up watching song of the south while we were children with our impressionable soft brains probably watched song of the south like 50 times each over the course of our childhood and weird plus like lots of racist cartoons just like all the time when i do watch his more racist films i'm not like particularly worried about it in that i have a lifetime of experience of processing uh racist art in a way that doesn't turn me into a racist. Yeah, Yeah, I really like Lillian Gish. I will be curious to watch more films with her. And I... And I just need to watch more silent films. I I, I was watching it and I was just like, why do I watch silent films like all the time? Just all the time. They're so good. I mean, I'm sure lots of them are bad, but... Well, a lot of them got destroyed. Yeah, like almost all of them. (laughs) Probably a lot of the bad ones got destroyed. Yeah, There's something really cool about silent cinema in that it just feels really pure. Mm. Sometimes I think that if I was like alive in 1927, I would have been a huge sound skeptic. Yeah, yeah. Like, this, this is the death of cinema. Mm. 
they can't stop making silent films. That's that's a disaster. And only Chaplin would would be be the bomb for my heart. And I do think there's a degree of even though I liked it a lot, if anyone listening has never seen a silent film or has only seen like one or two, I wouldn't recommend it. No, definitely not. Because it's particularly with like the missing scenes and and stuff like that. And I think there's a lot of things that a modern audience might find off-putting, which I don't think is true of a lot of silent films. Like, if you want to watch a silent film, you know, watch City Lights or whatever. Watch watch Chaplin's Heyday or watch The General or watch Caligari. We've all, we've mentioned all those. If you, if you, if, if you want to watch a weird documentary you, about the... witches from before they had documentaries yet, watch <laughs> Haxad, Witchcraft Through the Ages. And then once you've like developed like a, a taste for silent films, then you can go back and watch Way Down East. It should be noted that like even in D.W. Griffith's time, D.W. Griffith was considered a weirdo like for making such moralizing pictures <laughs> and for his commitment to... He was like innovative as a like visual artist, but his he he was a very old fashioned storyteller in terms of yes, like the kind yeah. of stories that he that he he chose to tell and like even Way Down East like there's no way that almost anyone else even at the time adapting Way Down East would have kept in all those secondary characters. But <laughs> B.W. Griffith, yeah, it's got a very to make like, a nice little pastoral, <laughs> you know. It's it's like a 19th century novel where there's just yeah like, exactly. Mm-hmm characters that are just irrelevant to the story (laughs) like i love middlemarch but like you couldn't call a lot of that out george (laughs) next episode i introduced dean to the nicest bank robber in film history when we watched the 1975 cine lamette movie dog day afternoon i uh i have to be honest i genuinely forgot until you said just now what the next episode was i'm really looking forward to watching this I, I love Al Pacino and young Al Pacino, especially. Before he probably. had his second puberty. <laughs> yeah, and became hua Al Pacino. Yeah. I've I've seen two other Sydney Lament films. It's always two. What's with, what's what's this? Twelve with me? Angry Men and Network. Yes, Jesus Christ, my brain just Twelve Angry Men and Network. They both fucking rule. Yeah, yeah, they're. <laughs> At some point, I'm going to watch a Sydney Lumet film that disappoints me, and it's going to be because I started with, like, two of the most amazing films about, like, American society ever made. Well, get, get ready for Dog Day Afternoon. Okay. I'll tell you that much. Do you know much about Dog Day Afternoon? I know the basic premise, which is... Uh-oh! Spoilers! And I know about Attica. <laughs> Attica! Attica! Yeah, good. That's all I know. Until next time, I'm Dean Buckley. I'm Kira Maloney. The song was Boosh Dog by Alexander Nakarada. And this is the Sunday Presents. And happy birthday to Joel Schumacher. Doing a little East Coast swing Boys to men going on Not too hard, not too soft 
Back in school, we used to dream about this every day. Did it really happen? Or do dreams just fade away? Stop, 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 stop. God, guys, damn it.